Amen. Thanks, Dave. Dave is ever working hard at, uh, <clears throat> at keeping us legal and also on mission. Um, we, we should always say anytime we talk about money and giving, uh, we consider that if this is part of your family, that you would participate in this as your family, not as a way of receiving your money, but it's saying, like, if you're part of our family, we want you to join in and participate in the mission of Jesus Christ. And part of that is through, definitely through our wallets. So thanks, Dave, for that. I am excited about many of the things, the, some of the money that we've given towards C2C and church planning, by the way, has been designated to VIN uh, and Laura, who are planting uh, City Hill Church out of Urban Grace somehow. Uh, that still has yet to fully come into detail, and it's actually Vin, uh, Vin's building or City Hills building uh, that we'll be using on March 5th. Just so that you know, so there is a little give and take here going on. Um, this is the way the kingdom of God works. Um, I hope one day when someone asks someone in Calgary, "What church do you go to?" and say the one that everyone goes to in the city of Calgary, we're that unified. That's my hope. Uh, one day. Turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 4. My name is Trev, by the way, if uh, you're new to Urban Grace. And we're in a series from the book of Ezra. It's a fantastic book of the Bible, but it has an incredible amount of, of dust on its pages because very few of us are really familiar with its story and what Jesus can teach us from this story. So I'm making it a habit to read through the scripture because for some of you, this may be the only time you ever hear the book of Ezra read out loud. But I want to begin by asking you about the idea of opposition. Have you ever received some sort of opposition in your life? Some sense of resistance, some frustration of some kind, we do marriage counseling, that is me and my wife do marriage counseling on a regular basis, and we always say that conflict and opposition is inevitable. It's not if you're going to have it, it's when you're going to have it and how you're going to respond. And I think this is a very important topic for us, and it's found directly in the text, and I'm excited that there are some very helpful things in our text, and I want to read it for you here this morning. In Ezra chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand and one of our uh, ushers would love to give you a Bible, one of our Bibles that we regularly preach from. Uh, if that's your first Bible, go ahead and keep that Bible. And for the rest of you, turn in your app. And I want to just read this out loud. Ezra chapter 4. Adversaries oppose the rebuilding. That's the title. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, Assyria who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah 
and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ha-an-A-name, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabeel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Actually, in the text, it enters into an Aramaic letter. So it begins to be written in Aramaic just to kind of prove its authenticity. Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, who wrote a letter. I, I, I named this part of it when the Shimshai hits the fan. Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahim the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, everyone that he could possibly name. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river. Couldn't think of anything better than beyond the river? I, I don't know. It's strange. That's why it's capitalized. It was actually the official name. Send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may, may be made in the book of records of your fathers. You will find in the book of records and learn that this city is a rebellious city hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rahab, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, Greeting, and now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city not be rebuilt, or be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Quite the story, isn't it? 
There's a lot of background to that. I kind of make jokes in some ways because uh, these names are so unfamiliar with to us. And the story is really unfamiliar to us. The reality is, in, in, uh, it's, it's so hard to describe in a couple of sentences, but essentially what has been happening is uh, God had disciplined his people that he put in his land for a season. They would not listen carefully to him, so he used a neighboring country, Babylon, to discipline them. I call it the 70-year spanking, so to speak, where he brings a neighboring enemy country and powerful king to discipline his own children of Israel. And by discipline means that he took them out of the land. He took away their room. In those days, it wasn't go to your room. It was take you out of your room. And he puts them in Babylon where he asked them for 70 years to invest their lives in building and blessing up that city. You can find that story in Jeremiah. But then he also promised when 70 years were done, the disciplinary period was over. They had served their sentence, so to speak. And he brings in Persia to then take over Babylon. So he uses two enemy neighboring countries to discipline and then take out and to basically send them back. And the king of Persia... That's where the story starts. The king of Persia then develops this decree where he sends it out. He says, hey, if you want to go return to Jerusalem and rebuild your life there, rebuild the altar to God, rebuild your religious life, your spiritual life, you can do so if you want. Now, there's a lot of things kind of going on in the text that we can't talk about, that we can't necessarily pick up on, but we'll try to do so as we go through. But... What happens is, as they begin to rebuild the altar, as they begin to rebuild the temple, which represents not simply a building, but the worship of the true God. They're returning to their spiritual lives after 70 years of being away from being able to worship God the way they were instructed to by God. As they're rebuilding this, and therefore rebuilding the city walls, which would have provided protection, in those days it was unsafe to be outside the city. It was more safe to be inside the city because you had city walls and there was chaos outside and and order on the inside. In fact, actually pagan, the word pagan means to be from the farm, to be outside the city. I'm a farmer, so I, I guess I grew up pagan. That's what that means. But there's this sense in what they're trying to rebuild is this safety, this center of God's worship. And it seems like a very noble thing. And it also seems like the people of the land who seem to be on the same team are really opposed to this. I know it's strange, isn't it? It's a strange story. But in this story, I think we're going to see three things, and I want us to be watching carefully for them. The first thing we're going to see is, what is the opposition really against? Now, there are a variety of reasons why people oppose other people. But in this particular situation, I think this particular opposition arises out of something very helpful to us if we're going to understand what it means to face opposition as followers of Jesus Christ moving forward. Secondly, I want us to see some of the ways that this opposition works its way out so that we can pay attention to the ways in which we are opposed and see, are we opposed or do we face resistance because we're idiots or because we follow Jesus? I mean, sometimes people come to me and they're like, yeah, people are all against me. It's like, that's because you're not really smart. That's why people are opposing you. 
right? You're being kind of a jerk. You're being a moron, that kind of thing. But sometimes people oppose you and you don't know why. And it's helpful to know why there's potential reasons that people would oppose you and how this really works. And then actually not necessarily in the text, but because we know the truth of the gospel, I want us to look for how does Jesus teach us how to respond to opposition? And are there parallels here? So let's begin with number one. What resistant actually looks like? Next slide for us, Matt. What resistant actually looks like? And here's what I'd say right off the top. This kind of resistance is actually against the superiority of God, God's sovereignty, God being in control, God being above all other gods. Think about this for a second. This statement, there is one way to God, and that is through Jesus, has become somewhat of a war mantra in our society, in our culture. To say this kind of thing has become the great resistance. Why do I say that? Well, actually, as we looked at the first six verses, what we find is this unusual situation. Again, we've got a writer here who is very, very concerned about being short. Unlike me, he was concerned about using little amount of words as possible. And essentially what he's trying to do is he's trying to help these people understand that they're, these people of the land are against them. I mean, it looks normal when you read it. They approach Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses. This is all the leaders. Zerubbabel is the king at the time, the king of Israel at the time, the rightful king who hadn't been acting as king because he didn't really have a throne to sit on. Uh, the heads of ho- father's houses, we also see Yeshua in there because Yeshua is the high priest. These are all the, like the top level civic and spiritual officials and all the heads of houses. That's really the leaders they were talking about. And they say, hey, we hear you're in a building project in your church. Can we come and help you out? And we find a very obtuse answer. I don't know, did you see that? Does that feel weird to you? It's like, what do they have against these people? What is the deal? And they say, hey, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. But they said, you have nothing to do with us. Get lost. In other words, they're like, let us build with you. And Zerubbabel is like, no way. You're not coming to build with us. Not a chance. Hit the road. What's that about? Well, what's interesting is the peoples of the land, and it takes a while to uncover who these people really are, but they come from a neighboring region that's not directly in Jerusalem and in the right surrounding areas. They come from an area known as Samaria. If you have gone to church before and you've heard about Jesus, there's a chance you have heard the word Samaria. Samaritans, by the time of Jesus Christ, they hated each other because they were arguing over who had the better church. I know, we're so far past this this day, aren't we? Right? We're way beyond this kind of argument. 
like we worship God, Samaritans would be like, we worship God over here because our great-grandfather, he saw Jesus or Jesus incarnate here. And Jews would say, no, 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 we have King David and we have Jerusalem and so we have the best worship and we have it over here. So you see this actually interaction later with Jesus and a Samaritan woman. A, she's, actually it's not that she's a woman, it's that she's Samaritan. And she actually says, hey, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. That's the kind of rift there is. Why? Because Samaritans were hung up on some very interesting geographical things. One of them being, they seem to include the worship of other gods in their legitimate worship of God. I'll, I'll show you. In 2 Kings, actually. 2 Kings 17, verses 24. I, I don't necessarily want to turn you, but I want to read this out for you. And I want to read this account from a different author, by the way, or perhaps it was the same author with a different purpose for writing. And here's how he describes what these people are like. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Katha, Ava, Hamath, Sep, Harvan, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel, populated in these areas. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. I love what the Bible just kind of says, oh yeah, and a pack of lions showed up and knocked off a few of these people. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them. Surprise! Because they do not know the law of the God of this land. Can you imagine if that's the way God disciplined you and your family? Like, ah, we're kind of disobedient. How do you know that? Well, we're lion food, some of us. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and reach some of them the law of the God of the land. He's trying to teach them what's going on. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own. And put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities which they lived. The men of Babylon made uh, Succoth Benoth, that's an awesome name. The men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nebhaz and Tartak, and the Sevharvites burned their children in the fire, so that Adramelech and Anamelech, I guess twin gods, the gods of Sepharvan. So they, they had multiple gods here. They also, they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. Did you hear that? What they were trying to do is please God and please all kinds of gods. They were pantheists. 
A pantheist is someone who thinks that all gods are kind of relatively the same or that it doesn't matter which god you serve or which god you worship, that there are many ways to God, those kind of things. That's what a pantheist would typically believe, that there's karma, yes, there's Jesus, maybe Buddha if he would lose some weight, those kind of things. What does God say? God actually instructed the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. He was making a statement. He was saying, uh-uh, we're not into pantheism here. I'm not on the same level as all the other gods. You fear me or you don't. Those are your two options. Even the, the way the, the chronicler writes those, those words in 1 Kings, or 2 Kings. It's very clear that he's saying it tongue-in-cheek, like they tried to fear God and they tried to worship their own private God at the same time, whatever that may be. This happens all the time to us as people who try to follow Jesus. We try to include Christianity into our belief system. We try to hold on to our way of worshiping something. Maybe we worship money. So we say, well, I'll give God part of my money, and then with the rest of my money, I will worship myself. And actually, Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, if you worship God, you worship him with all of your money. Sometimes we try, if we worship ourselves, our time is our God, our image is our God. And so we say, well, I'll give, I'll give certain time to God, like Sunday mornings and maybe city group time, but then the other time really belongs to me, right? Actually, Jesus says, if you don't give everything to me, you're not really giving anything to me. Actually, for once, the people in the text seem to get it right. And they spot this. And they actually say, Hey, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. No, you don't. You worship him completely different. And I would say, refer back to uh, Ezra chapter 3 and chapter 2. Where were they when they began to build the restructures? They were off in Samaria thinking they were in the center of the universe. I would say this is always the greatest opposition we ever face. As a Christian person is when you make the statement, there is only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. That is the most offensive thing you can say to our culture. Some of you are offended right now by this. You say, how can you even say that? How can you even know that? Jesus doesn't leave this option up if we follow him. He says, you either love me with all your heart, your soul, and mind, and everything you have, or you should try your own way. It's the hard word, the hard line of discipleship. You see, these people, they were not telling the truth. This is why they have such a harsh, obtuse response, is they, were, they spotted this truth and they said, no, you do not fear God above all gods. You fear God on the surface, but inside, you're pleasing the local gods. There's a list in 2 Kings of the local gods. You might say sports, weather, time, 
image. Those are the things we worship now in our culture. Oh no, we don't bow down to little gold, you know, idols, so to speak. Instead, we worship the television. We worship our wallets. We're slaves to our work. We're slaves to our things. We're slaves to our time. What do you mean by slaves? Meaning when you're a slave to something, you do what it asks and you do anything to get it. You and I all have something we have a temptation to be a slave to. And this text reminds us that our greatest opposition we'll ever face internally and externally, is to the declaration that there is only one God and it's the God that we worship. There is only one way to God and that's through Jesus. Now there are many ways to Jesus, but there's only one way to God and that's through Jesus. Did you know that's exactly what he said to us? His disciples were trying to figure this out. They were asking these kinds of questions. They were saying things like, hey, we want to go wherever you're going. And Jesus says, I'm going I'm to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to pay for your sins. I'm going to prepare an eternal, secure place for you. And they said, well, how do we know where you're going? And he actually answered with a different question. He says, don't worry about where I'm going. Look at me. I am the way, the truth, the life. This is always the great opposition that we'll face. In our culture, it's not something that we particularly like hearing. In some ways, it's not something that preachers particularly like saying. We're people pleasers. We're Canadians. We're sorry. And that's my inclination. Yeah, God's the way, the truth, and the life. Sorry about that. I'm not sorry about that. I'm not a proper preacher of God's word if I say, there's another gospel out there, why don't you go try it? I'm a true gospel preacher when I say, if you don't believe this, then the Bible has places where you're going to go. The Bible has repercussions for those decisions. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I wrote in my notes, bold move, Jesus. It's amazing that Jesus gets pinned into this this thing like he's a good prophet and he has good advice for us. And there's a lot of good things that Jesus says. And I always want to ask, what about that statement? That's a Looney Tune type statement, isn't it? Like if you walked into work tomorrow and you were like, there's one God and it goes through me. You want to get in touch with God? You have to go through me. They'd be like, "Mm, don't talk to me. You're weird. We need to think carefully about this. That Christianity is not something, this idea that we simply try to get a bunch of morals out. There are people who say, maybe you pre- preach things that like, people can use. And I'm like, man, if you trip up on that one, everything else is not going to make sense to you. Which is why we say to truthfully preach the gospel, this is part of it. 
Jesus wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just here to help us live a better life. He wasn't simply here to die for our sins, although I would say that's so primary to it. He was here to make the statement, I am God. There's only one person who can do this for you, and that's God himself, and I am God. There it is, the great opposition. What we resist the most in our lives and what our culture will resist the most in us, personally and as a church. There's some who are likely listen to this online at some point and say, see, there's where I disagree with them. And I would say, yep, this is where the greatest disagreement comes. So how does this work? How does resistance to God's superiority work? Well, what's interesting is as the text, text continues, we immediately find the motive. So again, we may think it's really obtuse for these people uh, to just say, no, you don't get to work with us. You're not really on our team because you don't really believe that God is superior to all other gods. And immediately we find out that the people in the text, the leaders, Zerubbabel, Yeshua, the high priest, they're right. Because they're like... Okay, plan B. Let's political them. Let's get them in a little political snafu. Let's trap them in their own words. Let's go on their records. Let's write a letter. My father-in-law was famous for this. I'm so mad, I'm going to write a letter to those people. To this day. Well, in his context, it was like, I'm so mad, I'm going to fax those people. Right? You didn't want to hear if your father-in-law was going to fax you. Right? That means business. This is them faxing the Assyrians, who at this time were kind of like, they're in there with the Persians. The Persians were not that, they, they weren't that around much longer, actually. And they went in their records, and we find out that actually this, this is about a 20-year span. So the book of Ezra up until chapter, the end of chapter 6 is actually a little bit of a flashback. And this is a flashback within a flashback to say that during this time, this is how this opposition came down. The work stopped for about 20 years due to the opposition because they forced them to stop. And they said, go look in your records and see. This is a really rebellious city. Greatly exaggerated, right? As one famous author said, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. Some of you are really sleepy, so you didn't get that. Greatly exaggerated. I mean, you've got barely a remnant. We call this city remnant because it's barely a small, small percentage of people that return back to rebuild their lives in an economically devastated culture to a city that didn't really exist anymore, to a temple that didn't really exist anymore, and said, those people are a real big threat. I mean, this is somewhat like saying, hey guys, you, you, you'd better watch out for Airdrie. They're an enormous threat to the city of Calgary. Be like, ooh. No offense to those who live in Airdrie. Ooh, what's 30,000 people going to do against a million people who are really scared? 
They, they said this. You better watch out. These people, they're not going to pay their taxes. It's like it was worth pennies. They didn't have money to pay taxes. These people aren't going to contribute to the kingdom. No, you don't even have a kingdom yet. But the threat actually landed. The threat actually landed. And it was an attempt to turn the Hebrew people against themselves. And so how did this work? This is how opposition sometimes works for us too. They say things that are untrue. Right? This is how it begins. You know, you say things like, well, uh, if you say that your God is the only God, then that means you hate everyone else who doesn't believe this. Right? I mean, this is where our culture is kind of done to us. They haven't just kind of opposed us, but they've actually said, there are only two responses to this possible idea. And are you going to choose you love and affirm me in everything that I say and do, or are you going to hate me? And what's interesting about that is that the way of Jesus, the gospel, presents a third way, which says he completely opposes us, thinks we're wrong, and loves us wholeheartedly. Our culture has said, you can't do that. You can't disagree with someone. And love them at the same time. It's actually kind of told things that are untrue. Told us. So if you say, well, I don't agree with all your stances on how you understand gender. You say, oh, well, you hate me then. This is what happens in opposition. You will have people say things that are actually untrue of you. They'll actually present you with ideas that aren't real. They'll tell you. You only, church is only filled with perfect people. I'm like, have you been to our church? I love you guys, but that's not true about our church. We are not filled with perfect people. Starting with me. People say this. Christians don't think. It's science or faith. And if you have faith, then you clearly don't think and you can't articulate anything and you're not really intellectual. Is that true? The best thinkers of the last 2,000 years have often been Christians. The very things that science puts forth have been put forth by Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians. Like this idea that the earth was round. That came from a Christian. The very thing that now is pitted against Christianity. The idea of higher education in North America Put forward a lot by Christian. They were originally seminaries. Harvard, Brown. Uh, what's the other ones? Princeton. These were all seminaries at one time. Higher education? No, no. Christians have always been a part of higher education until recently. But people will say this all the time. People will tell you this all the time. It's not true. I notice that they don't get angry. They don't respond with hatred, they simply say, yeah, I knew you'd say that. I knew you'd be opposed. Or if they don't tell you mistruths, what will they do? They will greatly exaggerate your claims and try to redefine and take away words like love and say it's an emotion. For centuries it hasn't been, but all of a sudden, now the way Christians love, it's, it's now an emotion this is news for you, come and see me after. I'll explain it all to you. 
right? They'll just exaggerate a little. Oh, you don't love me because you don't accept me. That's not what love is. People will do this all the time in a variety of ways. What else will they do? They'll try to get political or economical when it's really spiritual. You see, there was a spiritual argument that they were having. They wanted to worship their other gods. They wanted to be part of this whole, you know, we worship God as you do. But then they said, well, if we can't beat you, or if we can't, sorry, if we can't join you, then we'll beat you. Meaning, we'll say, you won't get your money out of this. Christians shouldn't do this because they won't pay taxes. Our city's not exactly warm toward the idea of church buildings. I'm not saying that in a negative way against our city. I'm just saying there's no real good provisionary plan for church buildings. This is why it's been so hard for us to find space. It's because there are entire communities of 15 to 20,000 in our very city with no plan whatsoever for Christians to own land. What do you think that is? That's someone somewhere saying, if people start following Jesus, then we economically won't get anywhere as communities. Now, is that true? It's not true. Not even historically. Historically, if you look back, True, there's always a true remnant of Christianity, and that true remnant of Christianity has always contributed to cities. Always. They've always made cities better places to live. They've always done things that other organizations do. Do you know other organizations where have said, hey, if you're in need of help, come and see us, and we'd like to take some of the money that we have gathered and just bless you with it. Does that sound like your organization that you're part of or your business? So this is something that... that the church actually has been doing and does regularly. We contribute to our city, but you know what we hear? We have no place for you. Now, again, I am not against our city. We named our church after the city, Urban. I believe in it. I just understand that we're going to face some oppositions that go on in our life, and it's going to get political. And it's going to get economical at times. And those are some of the things. And this goes for us personally as well. That at times, people will oppose you. Oh, they won't say things like, you can't work here anymore because you're a Christian. They'll just say, I'm going to give the position that you rightfully deserve as your skill level to someone who I know will fudge the truth a little bit. Because I know you're a Christian. I know you follow the rules. And I, I know you don't lie to the government. I, I know these kinds of things. I'll just do that. They find a way to weasel you out at times. This is what happens. This is why the text is so interesting that we actually see this. So what's our application from this? This is the way opposition kind of works. This is the way it rolls around. But we're hopeless, friends, if we do not land with the last part. What can we do about it? How do we, how do we respond? Picketing. I'm just kidding. We don't respond by picketing. That's what I would expect. Wouldn't you expect kind of like, okay, well, we can write a letter too. And they do write a letter later on in the text. 
But they write and they say, they write later on actually in chapters 5 and 6 and they say, you know, like now that we're into looking at records, if you just go back into that same file, you'll actually see that Persia gave us permission to do this and that we're not actually rebellious. Those claims are greatly exaggerated. And uh, actually, we don't work for you. We work for the God of the universe. You should have been listening in the first part of our chapter. And so ultimately, it's not up to you. But how can we respond according to the gospel? Well, actually, we can respond and expect the same kind of opposition, friends. The same kind of opposition that's here in the text, I think, is the same opposition that we can face. Although we know we have clear consciences towards these things, we know that there are people in our city who are not happy that we're here. It's not simply those kind of oppositions that we face either. We also face spiritual oppositions, which is actually the real war. That's what Jesus actually says. You think this war is about people versus people and politics about politics. You think it's about liberal versus PC. It's not. There's a spiritual battle going on that's real. And that's the real battle. Not just a real battle, but... The real battle. One of his disciples, Peter, who, by the way, is one of the people who actually opposed Jesus when he kept trying to tell him that he shouldn't keep talking so negatively about going to the cross and paying for people's sins. Like, settle down, Jesus. That was Peter. You know, Jesus was like, hey, I'm, I'm leaving this world. I'm going to die. Don't worry, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to accomplish everything. I'm going to become the new temple. And Peter's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Settle down, Jesus. Quit talking so negatively. This was the same Peter who actually then turned around, wrote a letter and said, my dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that you are facing. Why? Because he had watched Jesus face fiery trials. Did you know that the death of Jesus was not a legitimate death? People did not follow rules to put him on the cross. They made things up. They greatly exaggerated his claims. They told untruths about him. They took things that he said and they twisted them in a way and they made it economic and political. This, this Jesus guy, prophet guy, he'll destroy everything that Jews have worked hard to get. He'll destroy the temple. He said he would destroy the temple. It's actually not what he said. He said, when you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. I will become the temple. He didn't tell them he would destroy the temple. He told them they would destroy the temple. And that he would eliminate all this by becoming, essentially, the temple, the focus of God's worship. Jesus also reminded his believers, his disciples, in Mark chapter 13, when he said, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Who wants to accept Jesus this morning? Imagine if that's our text. Accept the claim that Jesus is God, that he came to pay the price for your sins, to wipe away all your sins, and that now... You have a target on your back for the rest of your known life and you will be hated by people for this simple fact. 
We don't really get this very well in North America, but this is why all across the world they are beheading people who believe that Jesus is the only way to God. They are taking their heads off for that only reason. We can expect this. Are you ready for that? Do you think like that? Secondly, we don't fight physically, we fight spiritually. Some of us are wanting to get into these kind of fisticuffs, so to speak. Maybe it's not physical, maybe it's verbal, and we just, we got to argue against people. And when we get that opposition, we want to say, no, and we want to just argue against them. And we say, we've got to remember that Jesus said our battle is ultimately not physical, it's spiritual. One of the more famous writers of the Bible, Paul, he said this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up your armor. The armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. It says, put on your gear, fellas, ladies, get ready. And that gear is spiritual. It's the gospel. It's the word of God. It's prayer. It's all of these things. And lastly, I want to say, keep in mind one very important factor. We win. By we, I mean those who believe in Jesus Christ. They, we. We win. What does that mean? It means actually that even though some of these smaller battles of opposition come against, it means ultimately... Jesus is the victor over all things. Despite the fact that some people would push against and would argue, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus says this, one day your knee will bow to me anyways. It doesn't say all those who believe in Jesus' name will bow to him. It says all people will bow to him one day. All people will recognize Jesus as God. All people will see him on his throne as he truly is. And Revelation gives such a wonderful picture. I want to read it out loud for you. The writer of Revelation is John, close friend of Jesus, who actually got ostracized and felt opposition and resistance pretty much his whole life. He wrote this letter on an island so he couldn't escape. And this is what he said. He got a vision from God about what it would look like to see Jesus in reality instead of simply see the Jesus who was crucified on a cross, instead of simply seeing the Jesus who had risen from the dead and conquered death. What would he see Jesus as? A rider on a white horse riding victoriously through the earth. 
Then I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one who on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, meaning lots, lots of bling. And he has his name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, meaning he has paid a price. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of his fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Have you ever seen a winepress where you put grapes in and you just mash them? That's what this is. He will tread on the nations like he's just squishing wine out of grapes. It'll be this simple for him. The fury of the wrath of God. I mean, I don't want that. I don't know about you. And on his robe and on his thigh is his name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Big tattoo right here. Can't mistake it. King of Kings, I'm in charge. That's what his thigh tattoo says. Imagine showing up at the swimming pool with a guy with a tattoo of a sword that said, I rule the nations. Okay, you either want to be near him or as far from him as you can possibly be. That's the picture of Jesus in reality. And yet, here is what's amazing about the gospel. He doesn't come to us that way yet. He invites us. He beckons us. He says, bow the knee now. Do it now while there's time. I will one day pour out the wrath of everything upon this world. Some of us have been paying attention to the triple homicide that's gone on our city, the concurrent sentences, and some of us in our hearts are like, I can't imagine something so despicable, and we want to unleash wrath on this person. That's our instinct. That's in our DNA. That's from the image of God, this idea of justice. Can you imagine God's ultimate wine press of fury on the earth. What he will do to multiple serial killers, multiple disobeyers of God, multiple sinners, the way that would look. I, for one, I want to be the guy sitting next to that guy. I want to be on his good side. How are we on his good side, friends? He says, believe. It's the great loophole of the gospel. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ and you will be saved from the wrath and fury of God. This doesn't even make sense for us. Trust that Jesus is God. Not trying to point us to God, is God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the forgiveness of sins. He's the Alpha, the Omega. That means literally the Greek, the beginning and the end. He's everything in between. He created the earth. He's going to end the earth. He's in charge of the earth. He designed the earth. Believe in the name of this Jesus Christ, and you're the one sitting next to that guy with the I am in charge tattoo, protected by him. Given 
his spirit to proclaim. Yes, we will face resistance, friends, but we win. Yes, we will see some battles. Yes, we will be on the losing end of some small battles. But in the end, friends, we're the people who are riding on the horses behind that dude. Victorious, chanting, screaming, that's our Savior. My friends, what's holding you back this morning? Somehow, you and I are going to face this Jesus. For some of you, it'll be a lot sooner than you think. How do you want to face him? You're going to have to bow anyways. Friends, what will it be? Now let me, Tim, try and follow that. <laughs> Come on up, band. What I don't want you to hear is condemnation. I don't want you to hear there is no way because all of your sin, all of my sin, can be forgiven by Jesus Christ Almighty. He didn't simply come to be one of the gods. He came to be God. And we celebrate every single week what we call the Lord's Table, communion, Eucharist, if you will, depending on your background, whatever you want to call it, it is an opportunity for those who believe that Jesus Christ is God to partake. The, the Bible actually says, don't do this if you don't think you believe it yet. So when we ask and invite people and we say, those who don't yet believe it, don't take it. We're not saying we don't like you. We're not trying to be exclusive. We're saying, when you take this, we are assuming that you believe what I just said about Jesus Christ. And how is it symbolized? Bread and wine. Crackers for us, but still wine. What this symbolizes is that this is the same kind of symbolic blood that is dipped, that, that the robe of Jesus Christ is dipped in. Same one. Same blood. It's his blood. Not our blood. It's his blood. It's his blood that was shed. If you want to know how badly God hates sin, all you have to do is look at what Jesus suffered on the cross. That's what God was willing to do to someone who said, I will take on the sin of the world. It happened to be his own son. That's why we have the wine. What does the bread or the cracker symbolize? It symbolizes the flesh. We don't believe that Jesus was just a spirit who showed up in this earth and kind of did a few things. We believe he came. We believe God was amongst us. We believe that if God was alive and we were alive at that time, we could have sat next to him, smelled his B.O. We believe that about our God. He came that close to us. Now, if you believe that, friends, we invite you. And if you don't believe it, here's what I'd say. Give your life to Jesus today. As we look around the world, friends, and we face the opposition of what we're facing, I, feel, I fear time is running out for some of us, and we're not aware of it. It's like there's this big gaping sinkhole in the highway, and some of you are barreling 120 kilometers down, and all I'm trying to do is say, stop, 
before you head into this cavern, believe in the name of Jesus Christ so you at least know where you're going. So friends, I, I don't do this often, but I would say, this is the first time you've ever believed that, understood that. Bow the knee, would you come forward during our prayer time and pray with one of us. Take the time to figure it out. Come forward so that you can state publicly what you believe about Jesus Christ. And for those who do already believe, simply come forward and enjoy that you no longer will feel the wrath of God. You will no longer receive that and then ultimately you are part of the winning team. And so you can actually celebrate that. So consider these things as Tim leads us. Jesus.